Good morning, Gateway Bible Church. It's good to see all of you here this morning. And this, uh, this morning, I want to invite you to um, get your Bibles, and we're going to read Ezra chapter 2. I want to encourage you to actually have your Bible uh, in front of you, um, if you have that, um, so that you can actually see what's being said, not just up on the screen, that's an option, um, but uh, this is a long chapter with a bunch of names in it, and we're going to read it through together. So let's stand together, and we're going to see what the Lord has for us from this chapter. Ezra chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Bana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Perosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Era, 775. The sons of Pehath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 945. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Bani, 642. The sons of Bebai, 623. The sons of Asgad, 1,222. The sons of Adonikam, 666. The sons of Bigvi, 2,056. The sons of Aden, 454. The sons of Ater, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Bezai, 323. The sons of Jorah, 112. The sons of Hashem, 223. The sons of Gibar, 95. The sons of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Netophah, 56. The men of Anathoth, 127. The sons of Asmaveth, 42. The sons of Kirith Aram, Chephira, and Beeroth, 743. The sons of Rama and Geba, 621. Then a men of Michmas, 122. Then a men of Bethel and Ai, 223. The sons of Nebo, 52. The sons of Magbish, 156. The sons of other, the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Haram, 320. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Sena, 3,630. The priests, the sons of Jediah, of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Haram, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Kadme, and the sons of uh, Hodaviah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atur, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, 
and the sons of Shobiah in all 139. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabith, the sons of Keros, the sons of Siaha, the sons of Paddon, the sons of uh, Libana, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Reiah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Paseah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Asna, the sons of uh, Munium, the sons of Nephesim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Basleth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkas, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tima, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatifa, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotiah, the sons of Hasaphereth, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Jela, the sons of Darkham, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hattai, the sons of Pachareth Hazabim, the sons and the sons of Ami. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Telmala, Telharsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 652. Also the sons of the priests, the sons from, uh, sorry, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were to, not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly together was 4,000, sorry, 42,360 besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site, According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 1,000 priest garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this record of your people. And Lord, I ask this morning as we come to a passage like this that we would not do what we might likely do and that is to tune out, but we would understand, Lord, as best we can why you have included such specific things in your word. And Lord, to be reminded that they are for our benefit and growth. And so, Lord, what we know not would you teach us 
But we are not, Lord, who you make us. And what we have not, Lord, would you give us. And allow me, Lord, to faithfully proclaim your truth for your glory. We ask now in your precious holy name. Amen. I'm sure some of you are glad that I didn't call you to read Scripture this morning. And if you can read through this passage, you can pretty much read any other passage at all. Secondly, if you're looking for a name for one of your sons, here's a biblical list. Now, this past summer, as you know, you graciously sent my wife and I on sabbatical. And we had a wonderful time to get away, to rest, and to be refreshed. But what Ellie and I both acknowledged about two weeks in was that we really missed our beloved church family. We missed gathering for church. We missed the kind of natural fellowship that we have with one another. Now, don't get me wrong. We enjoyed visiting Christians in different parts of the world where God placed us. But the reason why we miss you guys is because, for us, community matters. Here at Gateway, we love and encourage one another. We share burdens and pray for one another. We, we fellowship around the Word and talk about our walk with God. We, we laugh, we weep, we face hardship together. We are fellow members of the body of Christ. But we're also friends in Christ. Friends, community matters to genuine believers who have been created by God to unite together as the body of Christ. We have not been created as God's children to try and face this world on our own. We need each other because God is at work for us in and through the members of his body. Maybe I want to put it this way. When God moves us, he doesn't move us to independence, to isolation. He moves us into community. He moves us to be part of the body of Christ. Now, friends, it's not just that we are commanded to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But gathering with the body of Christ is essential to the health and well-being of God's children. There were a couple of Sundays where my wife and I were not able to physically attend the church service. And so, thankfully, we were able to do something like live stream. And we're thankful for the ministry of the Word that we were able to hear. But get this, it was insufficient. Why? Because we were not fellowshipping with God's community. It lacked community. Now, as we come to Ezra 2, with this long list of names, we quickly realize that for the people of God arriving in Jerusalem, that community matters. So this morning, as we look at this chapter, a chapter that seems really unimportant, one that you could skip by, I want us to hang our hat on three verbs that will reveal to us three essential ingredients of a God-pursuing community. Now, or to put it in a question format, what are three foundational characteristics of a church eager to follow 
God's will. Now this remnant of Israel, remember, identified here as the people of the province, make the difficult 900-mile journey. Anyone here want to go for a walk for 900 miles through the desert, through rough terrain, with the potential of being attacked? I don't think so, but this is what these people did. They've been liberated by Cyrus's proclamation. They've been stirred by God to answer the call to go. And they've been encouraged by the sign of God's faithfulness every time a vessel for the temple was placed on a cart to go with them so that when they got there, they could put this temple together and have these elements present in that temple. And now they are arriving in Jerusalem and in Judah. But what will this new horde of people do when they get to Judea? They've answered the call to return home and to rebuild the temple, but how will they function? What will their new community look like? So Ezra, in recording these words, hints at three essential ingredients that are foundational for any community that seeks to follow God. I'll give you the three verbs. They're in our text. The first one is return. The second one's prove, and the third one is give. And when we see those kind of in their context, they're going to alert us to three essential ingredients. Let's begin with the first one. I'm calling it living in a particular place. And we get this really from verse 1 and from verse 70. Now, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Now, go down to verse 70. Now, the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their own towns, and the rest of Israel in their own towns. And there's two significant things I want you to notice here about what's happening in our text and what's being said here. First of all, there's the significance of ancestry. I want you to notice how Ezra records the places where they're returning to, Jerusalem and Judah. These are, first of all, Judah's the region and then you have Jerusalem, but then you have these, these towns or cities. And it says, to his own town. These were just like randoms, like, oh, just, just go find a town to go live in. No, 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 no. There's something else going on here. These people are coming back home to the town of their family's inheritance. When they were taken captive out of Judah, And into Babylon, they left these places. But now, they're coming home. And they're coming home to filter into this land and go back to those towns. Now, we don't know if if there are buildings still there. We don't know if it was just all rubble. We don't know if there was anyone else living in those contexts. But these people are going back to their, their towns. Now, if you remember in the book of Joshua, when the children of Israel, under God's instructions, enter the promised land, They went into these places that had been allotted to them by God, by tribe. 
You can look at maps in your Bible that show you where they all went. This was the land of promise. This was Canaan. It was divided up by tribes. So these people were truly coming home to the towns and villages of their, their family's inheritance. Can you imagine what it would be like for them? Now imagine that you come from a, a family whose homestead was in France. And as a family... You had to leave during the Second World War as the German army was coming. You fled your land. And you've never gone back because you weren't able to go back. And, and that land included a farm and a hundred acres of wooded land on a river, a manor house and some other buildings around. There was a, a, a local village. There was even a, a family graveyard. It was the place of your ancestors that they called home. It's where your great, great, great grandparents are buried along with other family members. Don't you think that it would be something special for you to go back to this place that was part of your heritage? Can you imagine what it would be like to go home? Can you imagine going to that property and picking up some dirt and thinking to yourself, this is the land of my family. And can you imagine the feelings of connectivity that you would have to that place? You see, this is, this is all ancestry. They're coming home, not just to the land in general, but specifically to towns and places that were theirs prior to them being taken captive. Again, part of my sabbatical, I had the privilege of going back to England where I grew up, and uh, I went to the town called Camberley, which is in Surrey, and to the subdivision where my house was at called Heatherside, and to 18 Byron Avenue, which is my former address, and I met up with one of my friends I hadn't seen for 40 years who lived just up the street, and we took a day just to, to look at our homes. Um, now, we the people that were living in there probably thought we were stalking them or something like that. I don't know. But we, we, we just stood in front of our homes and chatted about memories and things that happened and that kind of stuff. And we visited different places, places we used to hang out. And we reminisced about a lot of different things. It was a lot of fun. It was a wonderful time. My mind was full of flashbacks, things that I had forgotten. But it was also sad. Because in those 40 years... That was no longer my house, someone else's house. And things change over time. It's not the same. Friends, it's something like that that is taking place here. The Jewish remnant are going home to settle into the lands of their forefathers and once again establish those homes where they can raise their families and work the land. And friends, we might ask ourselves, well, what ancestry do we have that brings us together? I'm thinking now, as we as a people, a Christian people, we're not the Jews. For the most part, there might be some people that have some Jewish blood in them. But we're Christians. We're followers of Christ. And we have a legacy of Christian faith that has paved the way for us. And we, we want to tap into that a lot to remind ourselves that we didn't get here by ourselves. 
You need to open your Bible to Hebrews 11. I'm not asking you to do that right now, but you can read through what's called the Hall of Faith. You can see the kind of people that God used who demonstrated faith in the promises of God. And as we go through the book of Acts, we see the spread of the gospel moving through the Mediterranean. We understand the early church that, that rose up and much of that was persecuted. And then there's this whole church age where the gospel continued to be spread around the world. There's a legacy, there's a history of the movement of Christ throughout the world. And then, of course, we are reminded of the reformers who came to a place where they said, enough is enough. The church has wandered away from what God has called it to, and their movement was a call back to orthodoxy. Friends, we stand on the shoulders of spiritual pilgrims and giants. We don't physically have a land but we have a movement that God has called us to. So there's something here significant about ancestry, but there's also something significant about geography. The towns that are mentioned in this chapter are all in the region of Judah and Benjamin. And I was trying to find a map that would show this, and I couldn't find anything on the internet, so I had to do the work for myself, right? And I, I was reading through these, these places that are mentioned in this chapter, in particular, verses 21 through 35, list for us Bethlehem and Notophah and Anathoth and Asmaveth and Kirith Aram and uh, Shephira and Biroth, and it goes all around. And all of these are, are cities and towns that surround Jerusalem. They're in the south. And so they surround the central city of Jerusalem with the temple at, at its center. And as such, Jerusalem and the temple were always the orientation of these places. In other words, people may go to live in their towns, but what united them together beyond their ethnicity was their orientation to Jerusalem and the worship that would take place in the temple. And so, if you, want, if you want to look at chapter 3, verse 1, this is, we'll get to this next week, but I want you to notice what happens here. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, spread out, the people gathered, came together as one man to Jerusalem. See what's going on there? The central focus was in Jerusalem. Of course, the temple hadn't been built yet. And we're going to find in chapter 3, they build, they build the altar. But do you see what's going on? 50,000, a little less than 50,000 returning pilgrims didn't just go to Jerusalem, pitch up tents around the rubble of the, the, the temple in order to build it. No, they went to their towns and began to establish their homes, fathers, wives, and children, houses, lands, livestock, get themselves situated, get themselves organized. And when the time was right, the people, the workers, would rally in Jerusalem to work on the rebuilding of the temple. The point is that wherever they lived in the land, Jerusalem and the temple was at the heart of their land. My first ever time to, to Russia, um, uh, we got off the plane and spent a night near the Olympic Stadium, and we were then taken on a tour of Moscow. And our tour guide, she was a young uh, probably 18-year-old or so gal, spoke English really, really well, took us around the different sites. And when we went to Red Square, she said this, 
The heart of Russia in Mos is Moscow, and the heart of Moscow is Red Square. The life and culture of Russia begins here at the Kremlin. There's something like that happening here. The life and the blood and the worship begins centrally at the temple in Jerusalem, and people then gather together to worship in the, ten, the, the temple. That would be where they would go. Of course, it doesn't exist right now. Now remember, why do they come? Cyrus, by God's providence, gives a decree to say, go back to your land and rebuild your temple. <laughs> this is what they're doing. Now again, we're not Israel, but there's some parallels that can be helpful to us. We all live in different places around the East Bay, don't we? Castro Valley, Hayward, San Lorenzo, San Leandro, Oakland, San Ramon, Danville, Livermore, Vallejo. Now, in God's providence here, in God's providence, our homes and apartments, the places where we live, the very streets that we live on are the places God has called us to grow our families and to see as our mission field. He's placed us there by his providence. You thought you got that home because you wanted to live there. God was at work in that. You understand that? He is placing you there. That now is the place where you raise your kids. That's where you are going to be a missionary for his glory. But we all have a common reference point, don't we? There is someone who ties us all together, and that is Christ. He is the heart of our lives, and he calls us as his children, as his followers, to unite together in local communities of faith, where we can flesh out our mission together. And so we gather together at least once a week to worship him and to encourage one another as the body of Christ. You see that? Community, friends, matters. And for us, it's rooted in our Christian ancestry, but it's also rooted in the geography where God has placed us. But we come together. Wherever we're living, we come together and we're gathered as the body of Christ. It's a wonderful thing. So the first, might we say, characteristic or ingredient of this, of this community is living in a particular place. But it's not just arbitrary. It's, it's a divine thing. Secondly, it's belonging to a particular people. And here's this word prove, and it comes from verse 59. Let me read it. The following were those who came up from Telmala, Telharsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent where they belonged, whether they belonged to Israel. Now, just let that settle in a little bit here. There's three issues I want to pull out, really, from verses 2 all the way through verse um, 69. Issue number one, call it unity and diversity. Ezra 2 is primarily one long list of those who left Babylon to return to Jerusalem. You know that. And it gives us a picture of the structure and the makeup of this new community. There's five main sections to the listing of names. You can see them up on the screen there. There's the leaders. And by the way, it mentions there Joshua and Nehemiah. These are not the same Yeshua and Nehemiah that you're going to read in the book of Nehemiah. This, this is years before. 
These were common names. There's, there's leaders, there's laymen, there's temple workers, there's, there's the disconnected, which we just read about there in verse 59. And then there's a summary section. Now, why take the time to record these details? Why does Ezra repeat this list in Nehemiah 7? Because belonging mattered to the children of Israel. If I were to read this passage of Scripture with all the Israelites who were just arriving in Jerusalem, they would want to hear their name mentioned. Why? Because belonging mattered to God's children in the Old Testament. Turn back to 1 Chronicles chapter 1. 1 Chronicles chapter 1. 1 Chronicles right before Ezra. And I want you to notice what happens in 1 Chronicles chapter 1. Just scan over what you see in chapter 1. What do you see? Bunch of names, right? Look at chapter 2. What do you see? Bunch of names. What about chapter 3? Bunch of names. What about chapter 4? Bunch of names. Chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9. A bunch of names. Why? Because to the Jew, belonging matters. And we could break that whole section up. There's headings in your Bible. You can see Adam to Abraham, Abraham to Jacob, Jacob to David, David to the tribes of Israel, Saul to his descendants. Belonging to God's people mattered to the Jewish community. And so finding your name on a list like we have here in Ezra 2 was vital to truly belonging to the people of God. If you've ever been to Washington, D.C., one of the places that most people want to visit is the Vietnam Memorial. It's a monument to honor those service members who died or remain missing as a result of the war in Vietnam and Southeast Asia. Those names matter, and they matter most to the families they left behind, as well as to their fellow service members who survived. These names seek to honor those who have fallen or who have been missing, and, and you probably have seen pictures of, of guys who stand there and they're, they're rubbing the engraved name of that friend or that lost one. It matters to them that that name is listed on this memorial. Or you could go on a trip to the Holy Land and you visit Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum there erected by the state of Israel in memory of the six million Jews killed in the Holocaust. It's a very solemn place. I remember going there. It's very moving. And it's dark. And as you walk through the corridors, they have all these pictures that tell of the atrocities that were taking place during that time to the Jews. You can hear names being read. It's all in the background the names of the Jews tortured and killed in places like Auschwitz and Dachau, Buchenwald, the names are read consecutively to honor and remember men and women and children, and they don't stop. It's not a recording. There's actually a person who's reading out these names. Why? Because the names matter. 
Now, friends, that is this diversity in unity. We have these different kinds of people, but listed by name. And for the Jews, it mattered to be on this list. Secondly, passion and delight. Passion and delight. I'm using the word passion and delight here to describe the presence of these temple workers. Maybe as we were reading, you're kind of thinking to yourself, oh, why am I reading about priests and Levites and temple servants, sons uh, of Solomon's servants, singers and gatekeepers? What's, what's all this about? You might be scratching your head thinking, why would they make the journey and how would they help in the restoring of the temple? Well, we must remember that there has not been a temple or even a tabernacle for 70 years. And in particular, there's been nothing in Babylon. And so those whose lineage is to serve in the temple would have jumped at the opportunity to go with this group of people returning to Jerusalem. We know from the last chapter that the Lord stirred their hearts to respond but they were going not just to provide temple workers, they were going to use their gifts in the context of the potential of that temple being built. Let's notice what it says here. Priests, verses 36 to 39. We're not going to read all this again, but we were told that the tally for the priests is 4,289. That's 10% of the total in verse 64. So one in ten of those returning were priests chopping at the bit with a passion to restore worship back to Israel. And you can imagine them singing from Psalm 84, verses 1 and 2, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty, for my soul longs and even faints for you, for here my heart is satisfied within your presence. I sing beneath the shadow of your wings. Better is one day in your courts. Why? Because they hadn't been there. Priests. And there's the Levites, verse 40. 74 Levites. The Levites served the priests. Now, that's not many Levites, is it? If you do the math, that means that there was one Levite for every 58 priests. And if you know what happens in the temple, there's a lot of sacrificing going on. And these Levites then would be facing a lot of work, a lot of running around with little recognition. Verse 41, there's the singers, 128 of them, the singers. I mean, you know, I'm thinking to myself, what are they going to do? You know, the building the, the temple here, great is thy faithfulness, oh God, my, while they're working. I don't know that that's what's happening. I think they're going back and they're recognizing, look, before we can actually sing, we're going to help build. And when it's built, then we can sing. But they're going back to do what, ultimately? To sing. And of course, we're going to see the altar is complete in chapter 3, and there is celebration, there is worship. The gatekeepers, verse 42, 139 in total. 139 John Walton's, Alex Lopes, kind of guys, Peter Lenway's, the bouncers of the temple, so to speak, right? Making sure that no one gets in or out that shouldn't be there. Temple servants, verses 43 through 54. These temple servants assisted the Levites and took on the most menial task. Uh, if you wanted to be lowest on the totem pole, this was it. 
We're not given the total number, but there were a lot of them. The sons of Solomon's servants. What's interesting here about this group is that the majority of them have foreign names. Again, scholars trying to piece all this together think that these may be descendants of prisoners who came from other places right? and, and then eventually bowed the knee to the worship of the God of Israel. But the point in all this, friends, is this, that worship is finding its way back to Jerusalem and to the temple. Worship is coming home to its rightful place. Renewal and restoration is in process. But it's not just the building of the temple that is at the heart of these temple workers, but the joy and the delight of eventually serving in the house of the Lord and providing the worship that God desires to take place. And friends, there's a, there are a lot of people that work hard so that we as a church can gather for worship here on a Sunday morning. Musicians, vocalists, ushers, teachers, custodians, pastors, elders, tech people, Lord's Supper preparers, baptism ceremony supporters, events coordinators, deacons, and we can go on and on. And at the core, God calls us to use our gifts as a form of service worship. It's Romans 12.1. God's community delights to make worship happen to the glory of God. <laughs> Diversity and unity, delight and passion. Third, certainty and doubts. Take a closer look with me at verses 59 through 63. It says this, The following were those who came up from Tel Mala, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer through, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. And then we read a little bit more about the priests. It's verse 61. And we see in verse 62, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. Now, do you see that not being able to prove your lineage, lineage either through a family or even a town, left you as someone who was potentially excluded, in particular if you were a priest. You see, the people here were desperate to be counted in the community of God's people. They, they were desperate to belong. But that didn't mean that they were not necessarily part of the people of God, only that there was some cloud of doubt as to their, exactly how they are connected. This was more about clarity than it was about being cut off. Something interesting happens in verses 3 through 35 as the men are listed. Just kind of look back there in your Bibles. And you'll notice that in verses 3 through 20, Men are listed as the sons of people. But when we get to verse 30 or verse 20, 21, all the way through 35, they are listed as sons of places. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because you see, sometimes we have a lineage because of family, but we can also have a lineage because of place. You may have grown up in Oakland, and you can say, I am the son or the daughter of Oakland. Now, I realize here in the Bay Area now, everyone's like moving all over the place. You know, there's all this migration going on. But I mean, historically, people 
were born and raised and lived and died in the same communities. And so their identity wasn't necessarily just family. Their identity was even a place. And that's what's going on here. I can tell you what family I'm from or I can tell you where, what, what village or city I'm from. That was legitimate. But those in verses 59 through 63 could not give any evidence to prove their lineage. But their longing was to belong to Israel. Now again, we are not Israel, but we are God's church. And the church is made up of all whose names are recorded in the book of life. You read that in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, and chapter 20 and verse 15. And if your name is not written in the book of life, what? thrown into the lake of fire. So friends, the, the, the first question we have to ask ourselves is this. Are you on that membership roll? Is your name written in the book of life on that day when the names are read from the book of life? Will your name be mentioned or will it be missing? Now this is the church universal the church invisible. This is the church historical. For the book of life contains every true follower of Christ throughout history. Now, although the universal church is a reality, and it is, and we're thankful for that, it's made up of every true believer. Each believer is called in Scripture to identify with a local expression of that universal church, the local church. And that's what, what we call church membership. The goal of church membership is not to get more money out of you. The goal of church membership is to say, is this the place where you're going to choose to partner with other brothers and sisters in Christ for the glory of God? Uh, attach yourselves to them. Uh, you, you knit yourself to them. Commit yourself to them. As opposed to, well, I'm just going to attend and I'll be here, but I'm not fully in. When your name is listed on a church membership roll, it says to others and to God that belonging to the people of God matters to you. And friends, the Christian community matters. Your Christian family, the local church, matters to Christ. If your name is found written in the book of life, then why would you not want it to be listed in the membership roles of the church that you attend? It's only natural. So living in a particular place, belonging to a particular people, and now committed to a particular plan. This is his word, give. See, God in his providence has so arranged things that this remnant community takes God's plan, his purpose, his paradigm, if you want to say, they take it seriously. When they finally arrive to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, they are ready to serve. And they make a free will offering in order to build the temple. So first of all, I want you to notice they gave free will offerings. Some of these gifts that had been given uh, were given by the neighbors as they left. You remember last week, th those that didn't go were commanded to participate in providing resources and, and stuff for these people to take. They were going to need that. And so they did. You can look, see that in verse 6 of chapter 1. All who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares besides all that was freely offered. 
Of course, some of those gifts were given them to help them as they went back to establish their own homes and stuff, but specifically there were gifts that were given for use in the temple or to help with the, tr- the building of that temple. That's why it says they made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. This was, these were the freewill offerings that they brought and now they gave. But notice what, next, what happens next. They gave according to their ability. So not only did they bring these free will offerings for the temple, they also gave personally according to their own ability. My friends, that's, that's the measuring stick of what God wants you to do. You give according to your ability. We don't want to be, we don't want to say foolish and somehow demand something that we know you can't do, but at the same time, I think we all can think to ourselves we can do better than what we're doing because we tend to hoard what we want. In the New Testament, we're called to be good stewards of all God has given us and to give faithfully as God has prospered us. And that giving is an act of worship. Let me just remind you of a few things, friends. God says in Job 41.11 and at other places, everything under heaven belongs to me. Anything that you have, house, car, your diamond earrings, your tools, your paycheck, your cabin, your savings. It all belongs to God. It's all His first. He's given it to you to steward. He's called you then to be a faithful steward of what He's given to you, knowing that they all belong to Him. And then there's 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And verse 7, these should be up on the screen here. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly under compu- or, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't want you to see giving as some legalistic duty. No, he wants you to be convinced that it's true and it's right and that you should give but not as some kind of legalistic duty. Somehow you're proving yourself to God, or, or this is, uh, secondly, uh, you're giving kind of like grudgingly, like I really don't want to give, but I have to give because everyone's watching me. Right? That's not how God wants you to give at all. He wants you to give joyfully. Now, friends, in one sense, I kind of feel like I'm preaching to the choir here because you as a Gateway Church family are a very generous gracious and giving people. I know that because I've been the recipient of it. I know that because I know that some people in this church give and they want to give anonymous to certain people who are going through different things. And I have the benefit sometimes of seeing that. And it's wonderful. But God calls us to be joyful in our giving. I love what Donald Whitney rightfully says. He says, God is not some celestial landlord tapping a greedy, outstretched palm, demanding his due. He wants you to give because you want to. That's a heart of a true believer who recognizes what God is doing with the resource. You see, giving is a joyful act of worship. It says, God All I have comes from you, and out of love for you, I want to give freely from the heart what I'm able to give. So friends, do you give freely and according to your ability? 
Do you give so that the local ministry of God's church can flourish? Do you see your giving as worship? This community, this new community was living in particular places. Got the second one there. They were wanting to belong to a particular people. That was huge to them. And they were committed to the plan of God. God had said, this is how I want you to function. This is what I want you to do when you get there. And they followed through with that. Let's just bring this all to a close. I'm just thinking through this passage. And I was thinking just pastorally, but also as a church. You know, today, this weekend, marks the 12th year anniversary of Gateway Bible Church. And I was reflecting on that fact in light of our text, and I began to imagine the membership attendance roles of Gateway through the years, as if they were etched in granite as a legacy of God's faithfulness through us to gather his people together from places all around the East Bay to unite us in a common cause that we exist to glorify God by building a community of believers who are actively committed to knowing, applying, and proclaiming the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And then to serve one another with the gifts that He's given us, to give generously to the church or individuals as there is a need, and then to live our lives together in worship to God. And as I reflected on this In my mind's eye, my hand was rubbing over names. (laughs) Let me just mention a few. In fact, in your mind's eye, just kind of follow with me. Names that you know have been a part of our church that have had an impact or have been active. Loida Ochoa. Austin Helmert. Ron Costello. Johnny and Tia Kim. Nathan Jack, Steve and Regina Bright, Ilya and Ariel Petushkov, Matt and Allie Dotson. As I'm doing this, memories are flashing back. Conversations are flashing back. Ministering together is flashing back. Chris and Wavinia Kirgir, Dennis and Daniel Braga, Alex and Mikhail Gregerson, and there's so many more. I can't go through them all. But the point is, in my mind's eye, I'm just rubbing my hands on this reminder of what God has done with our community. And friends, he's been faithful. He has been faithful. But friends, the wall is still being built. And your name's are being etched into the granite. The gospel community that God has been building here is not finished. There's still a legacy to be had because community matters. And the question is, how will you continue to be a part of that legacy? See, community mattered to the people of Israel. And we know in theory it should matter here. (laughs) But does it matter here? Is your heart oriented to being a part of what God 
naturally has called you to by virtue of your conversion. You're saying, Pastor, I'm here. I understand that. But you can be here and not actually be actively committed to community. Oh, friends, the community of God is a wonderful thing. It's varied. It's diverse. And it's there to help you grow and to keep your eyes fixed on Christ and to be a part of his plan. Commit yourself. Commit your heart to finding how you can continue to allow God to use you so that this community can continue to grow for the glory of God. Lord, help us today. We've seen, Lord, how you brought the children of Israel back and how you are reestablishing their community there in Jerusalem and in that region. Desire, Lord, to, to keep the worship at the temple central. Lord, may we, as we continue to be your church and this community, may we continue to desire to keep you central in all we do. And of course, Lord, we realize that means listening to you through your word, allowing your Holy Spirit to have his way with us. Lord, may we rejoice in what it means to belong, not to be on the fringes, but to say, I'm in, I'm all in, and I want to serve, and I want to be used. And then, Lord, are we committed to your plan through your church, through this community? Lord, we, you want us to be gracious, not just with our giving of our finances, but our giving of our time and standing up for the things that are important, sharing burdens and responsibilities. Lord, help us to keep fighting for those essential ingredients. And Lord, as we continue to live our lives for your glory, Lord, may, may the, 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 the granite walls of the legacy of Gateway Bible Church continue to be etched with names because they desire to belong to your local church. And Lord, may we rejoice together in that, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen.